Hello and welcome to Keyframes, a podcast about anime. I'm your host, Ben Halliburton, and with me today is Duncan. Oh god, I'm first. Uh, hello. And Jeff. Yellow. We've been doing this literally since 2015, guys. Yeah, but normally Andy's here. Well, Andy and John are both out on assignment, so it's just a threefer of the three most navel-gazing prone uh, hosts on this podcast. And we're going to be covering depictions of the Chinese, especially Chinese women in anime, after we discuss the shows that we've been watching. Uh, And to start that off with... Uh, a couple of a couple of days ago, actually a couple of weeks at this point, I finally started my project to catch up with one of my favorite directors in anime, Mamoru Hosoda, and watched The Boy and the Beast, which I put off because I didn't care about the premise at all. <laughs> and Duncan, you'd said that you watched that way back when. What remains to you of of that that show? Oh God! Now now you put me on the spot. Um... That's all I'm doing this entire podcast. <laughs> Ah, wow, Boy and the Beast. Um, if you say you if you say you don't remember anything, that is a perfectly valid because that's a, that's where I will end up in a year, I think. But what what I re- remember is basically thinking, ah, this this is clearly part of his his series on different aspects of the family. Like he mm-hmm. he did uh, Wolf Children on sort of motherhood. This is a, a sort of on like fatherhood. Uh, I think it's straight up a, a, a meditation on fatherhood, and I think. That kind of sucks for it because Wolf Children is stupendous. It is it is one of the best anime movies of the decade. Yeah, uh, and Boy and the Beast is not. It's good. It's charming. It has two strongly realized characters in a ultimately kind of dumb fantasy world that undermines the best parts of those characters. And so, but anything anything would look inferior next to as a follow-up to wolf children yeah um what was i'm sure he had a what was his i think he had another one recently didn't he um uh mirai oh what is it it's mirai something mirai Mirai no mirai Mm. and and that that just came out last year i guess it's whether or not we can't think like obviously we had before that we had summer wars and we had um, which i which i'm a fan of despite it a lot of people describe it as his weakest work. At least they did until Boy and the Beast. And I've, I like Summer Wars. I think it's it's fun while being serious, which is something that anime often struggles towards, but often misses at the same yeah. time. I mean, he, he did that. And uh, I mean, my personal favorite of his for a long time was The Girl Who Let Through Time, which mm-hmm. I just enjoy as like a uh, short... It, yeah, it's just like, it like feels like a very well contained science fiction and right. film, and it's a, and it's about like the way that you develop like feelings for people without being a fairly mushy romance either. Too, I think. I mean, I think he he considering the themes he he, he approaches, I think he manages to avoid sentimentality mm-hmm. fairly well. They they don't tend to be these. Very uh, saccharine and treacly. Yeah. yeah, they 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 always have like some sort of not. Uh, God, I, I hate that this word is has been like like Whatever, edge. Kill it. Ed, like edge has become like just like completely <laughs> destroyed as a word. Uh, it's it's all I can think of is like. They all have like an off note somewhere in them, somewhere where something happens which is not, which which feels, and that like 
I think there's in sometimes in um in very sentimental works you can get artificial old blackness added in where um mm-hmm. they'll throw in a, a tragic event just to who just go be sad now okay keep being sad keep being sad done and I think he manages to have like a lot of bittersweet moments I think that's 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 what like with um deaths but often the often the natural deaths often it's it's not seen as a, a tragedy or mm-hmm. it's seen as like a natural consequence of who they were or just it was their time and stuff it's i think in both in wolf children at least he has the way he portrays the idea of being a, a mother and the like just comparing it to your most hated anime from last season, like he's so like which compared... one? I can't even can't even keep him straight. Well, is is is, is multi target mum not your most hated from last uh, season? Yeah, fair. Like <laughs> compared to that, it's like just I know that's that's tra- trash tier, and this is like god tier, and then comparing the two is <laughs> is sort of like it's it's honestly unfair because I think that that as you kind of said, Mamoru Host is very good at having characters who are flawed without those flaws being indictments. In fact, they make them like human and sympathetic and mm. interesting and drive the plot forward. And meanwhile, uh, multi-target mom, as you called it, which uh, do you love your mom and her two hit multi-target attacks? Like no one's flawed there except by just being too perfect or too whatever. So like the texture that's in Memorial Hosta's work, even stuff that like Summer Wars, even stuff like Boy and the Beast, which we haven't really described the plot of, but this young man runs away and gets adopted by a beast in the spirit world who, um, even though they're both kind of gruff and difficult to get with, to get along with, uh, the boy ends up becoming a great fighter uh, and ends up, you know, saving the entire beast realm after uh, another, another adopted boy ends up falling to the darkness in his heart, which apparently all humans have and beasts don't. And that's what makes beasts able to turn to gods and humans have to just live and die like normal <laughs> mortal animals. And like that arc is kind of bland and it would, it would lend itself to hero worship. But I do think the fact that like that, uh, that, uh, Kuma Tetsu and, uh, Kyuta are slash Ren, um, are both so, both so like relatably assholish. And yet they're the anchor of a very, very wannabe Spirited Away movie. It reminds hmm. me of Spirited Away, like uh, Children Who Chase Lost Voices from Deep Below by uh, Shinkai Makoto reminds me of Castle in the Sky. It's obviously their Miyazaki attempt. And both of them are the worst movies in that director's <laughs> oeuvre, but... Yeah, don't copy Miyazaki is probably a fairly good rule to live your life by if you're an anime director. <laughs> But yeah, I, but yeah, I agree. Wolf Children is just is just so it, it goes so many places, and it's so textured with like the small events of growing up, and it leaves you with a mother's pride about the characters at the end. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen with Boy and the Beast. And I don't think it's entirely sure what a father's pride looks like. Mm-hmm. I guess when you, when he meets his real father at the end, who's this very kind of nebbish, worn down man who had abandoned his family when. Kyuta was young, but when Kyuta's mother died and he didn't have any other caretakers, like he came back and tried to and like wants to be in his life again. And it's 
you get the sense from that that he's just he's just like oh you're so you're so big and you're so confident and you're a real person now and i like i wish i could have been here to see that but i'll be here from now on and that's hmm. that's not as profound as at the end of wolf children like the the main character's relationship with her with her two children the one who decides to stay in the human world the one who decides to stay in the wolf world oops sorry spoilers <laughs> but uh but yeah i like i don't know i enjoyed it and i and i think it's it's great characterization beautiful intricate art style um good action but yeah i don't know i just yeah, it's, it's, i don't, I don't it's, know how you, what, how your reaction to that I stuff is i think it's definitely like tries to be a bit more of a crowd pleaser than some of his uh, other stuff like as you say it's got got some great action and it's a, mm-hmm. it's possibly more like the others are all beautiful but this is perhaps the most colorful of his his works like the most overtly like as you say it's it's in a fantasy realm so it gives him an opportunity to use this very vivid and fantastic palette which doesn't necessarily appear in something like wolf children which is mostly taking place in the the countryside um mm-hmm. yeah, but he, but he does but he does like the colorful stuff because i mean summer war is a big a big uh staple of that is is in this digital world where fighting appears to be the like fist fights appear to be like the main activity that people do that's not like shopping for the digital avatars mm. so i think he does a, a really good job one thing i do remember is he he did a really good job of actually getting expressions across on some of the the beastmen which is yeah. kind of a, like like um recent recent things like slime and that like quite often there's like all, the only way you can tell whether a beastman's happy or or sad is is whether they they've decided to put some weird expression and, and stuff over his head and like it's even a show like uh, um, Demon Slayer will sp- will specifically use an animal head to give someone this weird mad um, unchanging expression and it's mm-hmm. it's so much difficult for humans to read subtle emotions on a face which doesn't entirely map to our own yet it's like i i i I remember like the 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 boar family like yeah i was gonna bring them up yeah the like the the moment that the the dad and like the 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 younger son and like they've all got like these very subtle um very recognizable moods and expressions which you don't necessarily get in uh a more lazy production and a lot of that has to be like sold because the big issue is the uh ichiro hiko the the adopted human son who's just because the father was the father yozen was afraid of him waking up to the darkness in his heart just lied to him constantly about how no you're a bore you just your tusks will come in your your fur will come in but you're you're a bore and you're my son and how that fell short and a lot of that scene of realizing how this person basically had been tortured by their adoptive father because he knew his father wasn't being honest with him, but he wasn't mentally able to, to recognize that his father hadn't been honest with him. Um, like that has to be sold on, on everyone's face um, as well as on the actual boar son of the boar father, Jiro mm. Maru, who is an extremely strange performance where he's, he's definitely like starts out as like, the kind of like husky voice, like little bully kid who's like, you're not strong. And then like the moment that, that Kuta slash Ren punches him, he's like, Oh, I like you now you're strong. And he's like best friends with them for the rest of the movie, okay, that, which takes place over eight years. There's also, <laughs> obviously something which is in common between that and the, the, the 
something about boar-headed Charles in Ch- Charles boar-headed Childs in Anme because like that's that's basically the the, the entire uh, arc of the of the, the character in Demon Slayer as well. It's like oh John's favorite character, yeah. the boar-headed guy. <laughs> He's like, oh yeah, now you've proved you're strong. I like you. Well, fair enough. Yeah, I wonder if that's just an animist portrayal of boars. Is is just <laughs> this kind of like only respect strength, but very loyal and and compassionate once they respect yeah. you. Yeah, because that was also the way they were depicted in Princess Mononoke as well, right? Mm-hmm. The, the boar spirits, very proud. Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. Actually, what um, the the titular beast? What 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 animal do you think he is? Is he like a He's lion? He's supposed to be a bear. Obviously, a bear. He, it is it is weird though because from some angles he just looks like a human wearing like like wearing like a uh, what are the like p- the full body pajama suits like kagurumi <laughs> or something <laughs> yeah Kigurumi, yeah like wearing wearing one of those because he's got like really pronounced human eyebrows and like human lips and so like when they put him at an angle where his snout is not obvious he just looks like kind of a weird looking guy in a fursuit. <laughs> And that threw me off, but that's the problem with like a lot of like they have the the monk who's a who's a pig who just basically just has a has slightly pointed ears and a slightly turned up nose, and it was very very subtle as opposed to like boar dude or the the monkey best friend of yeah. of Kumatetsu who who literally just looks like a, a monkey, but. But I guess that's that's a, that's a nearer reach for for humans to monkeys than humans to bears. I can't remember what what his role in the story was, but there, I remember there was a, a there was a rabbit a rabbit. I think he was like one of the elders. And I, I no, I the liked... rabbit is so the, that was the plot. Is the rabbit is retiring, and the strongest yeah. beast will get to succeed him. He's going to retire and become a god, which is apparently what you do when you get <laughs> really old as a as a, a mortal beast. Um, and so he's going to retire and become a god. And there's Yozin, who is who is strong, popular, powerful, has many students, is, has a immaculate moral reputation. And then Kuma, Kumatetsu, who lives alone, has no friends, no students, um, is like filthy and unpleasant, but is a strong fighter. And so it's kind of how that character gets completed by having this young boy to, to raise and kind of complete think, himself do you think it, it's saying something in particular about how the as you're saying like how f- trying to fit this child into his his family the the boar the boar um the boar guy he's trying to make his son conform to uh who they are as, as a group and be all this pressure on him whereas um obviously uh um, with the bear, with the child of who, uh, the beast and the and the boy, it's like it's the titular beast and boy. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's very much a case of um, not one person uh, uh, it putting his values on another, but the two of them changing each other and do you think like that's that's what it's it's saying about uh, fatherhood is that it's not about it changes you because you you are into you have this expectations of um how you should be as a father and but who your child is will change you as much as 
whatever expectations you have of that role is. Yeah, well, I think that I think that ultimately the show has a lot. The movie has a lot to say about what the process of fatherhood actually means to the father and the child. But I do think it is it is some variant of that where Yozin considers that he has not seems to think that he has nothing to learn from his child. He's just imposing a top down vision of what it is to be an adult. And it's a compassionate, nurturing vision, mm. but it's still just like a one way unilateral thing. And uh it's meanwhile, Kumatetsu, the the titular beast uh, is a flawed person, and I think there's this this acknowledgement that like fathers are people and people are flawed. Therefore, you have much to learn, as much to learn from your kids as they as they do from yeah. you. And if you ignore that, then you're 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 stunting them by not letting them teach you things. If you don't if you don't act as a full party in this in this process of growing up, hmm. um, and as someone who's not a father, I I can't really speak to it, but like. I do definitely get the sense that, that having a kid makes you grow up in ways that you that you thought you were done growing up. I, Jeff can speak to that or not. Um, but, the, wrong, the wrong two people watch this, I yeah. think. <laughs> I mean, have you watched much Memorial Hosoda, Jeff? I think I've only seen uh, uh, Summer Wars. I think I might have seen some of his others, but I don't remember. I don't recall. But yeah, yeah there's, there's, the like girl, the, there's Girl the, Left Your Time, Summer War is uh, Wolf Children, which is his best and probably will be his best. I don't want to discount well, it's, him. It's, but it's just like even the most talented directors often only produce something like that by happenstance as much as talent. And Right. And this is I mean, Boy and the Beast is good. It's just it's just not like it didn't it didn't make me cry. It didn't force me to like change my it didn't make me call my mom. That sort of that sort of thing. Uh, where you you have, I mean, we've all had those experiences where you have this like, watch this movie or watch this show, but a very fraught parental relationship. And you're like, I should see how my mom's doing, <laughs> or I should see how I should. I haven't called my dad in a couple of weeks. I should see. And like, Wolf Children is is very much about how like you sacrifice a lot to have kids, and that's the beautiful thing. And if you didn't have to sacrifice anything, it it wouldn't be as profound or fulfilling experience. And I think that the boy and the beast is also trying to tap into that. And just unfortunately he's yeah. said all his good points and he's come back to the bar later with, with a, a few more arguments and they're not as good, but no, I, I need to see Marie, Mirai no Mirai. Cause I've heard it's, I heard it's was well, well reviewed, yeah, but it's, it's another, another one I need to, to get around to as well. I think they, I'd be, if Jeff gets the chance to watch boy and the beast and wolf children, like a double header, I'd be, Really interested. You hear that, Jeff? You got to watch four hours of movie now. Four hours of really good movie, though. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, four hours, two hours of really good movie, and <laughs> two hours of pretty good movie. Yeah. No, I've, I've I've been watching a lot of like parental based shows recently in Steven Universe, <laughs> so that sounds like it would sort of roll into that same theme. Right. I mean, if you're watching shows about moms, can't yeah. get better than early Steven Universe. And then later, Steven Universe too. <laughs> Middle Steven Universe, eh, mom's problematic, but <laughs> yeah, I, the later in Steven Universe, the, the the like one of the questions becomes, "What if your mom was an asshole?" And <laughs> I, I ultimately, I at least I like where that goes, and I don't think that Mamora Hosta is interested. Like, what if your parents failed you? Which I think is honestly something that we cover pretty heavily in media, mm-hmm. um, but just like. Yeah, Summer Wars and Wolf Children and and Boy and the Beast all seem to be very like 
like what we owe to our parents and what our parents owe to us. And mm. yeah, so I'm glad I watched it. I'm, I mean, I wouldn't have watched it if I hadn't bought the Memora hosted a box set during the during Right Stuff Anime's summer sale. <laughs> but I'm glad I did. And it, it looks great. It looks great on Blu-ray. So all the stuff does, though. He's always had a really stunning, intricate, very modern visual style. Mm, cool. Well, speaking of stuff that's not stunning or intricate or very modern visual style, we've watched the one like early, earliest release in the next coming season, right? We've mm-hmm. all watched some of After School Dice Club. We have, yes. And yeah, like the the new season is just kind of like crawling out of the gate. It seems like this coming week uh, is going to be when everything else starts to drop. So yeah, it's just like all the heavy hitters. It's got things like uh, Ch- Chihaya Furu and uh, all the big shonen shows. Cannot wait for Chihaya Furu to drop. But yeah, yeah. So this is off to you know getting a head start, which is it probably needs. <laughs> yeah, this would be lost if it came out a week later. Mm. Lost in the rush. But, so uh, it's a show about a young girl who doesn't really understand fun or play. Or happiness, but then she kind of gets voluntold by one of her classroom friends to stalk the class rep who's very rules-oriented and discover that the class rep works at a board game store. And then they play a board game, and that's the episode. Yep. <laughs> and they play like they play like a real board game. They play Marrakesh, and they like explain the rules to you enough that you could probably play it and do a long sequence on like explaining explaining plot stuff, which is why I compared it to Takunomi, the the drinking anime from a year ago ish mm, yeah uh where uh, where it's like small personal problem and then segue into some sort of product segment where they talk about uh a beer but in this case they're just talking about a board game and that looks like it's going to be this the the format is every mm-hmm. every episode mm-hmm. there's some character stuff and then they play a board game so well, th- those two sections feel very self-contained like you, yeah it's like here's the here's the plot bit here's the board game bit and as you say like shows like um which are just like the 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 light comedy product show like that seems to be a well worn formula mm-hmm. the, f- the few times where it works whereas shows which are more interested in the characters and the 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 hobbies or um products are just part of their character things like um high score girl which we're getting more of very yeah as... i have mixed feelings about that too bad andy's not here to tell me i'm wrong are we getting it um i think it's a bit later than the rest of the stuff this season yeah we, we saw have, we have almost a month to go i think before mm, we before yeah. we get it and like high score girl still has big segments and all about a specific characters within the game or or why a particular game is good and the challenge of it, but they're always um, framed within something which is happening to the characters and as a sort of anecdote within their wider emotional arc, which reflects how they are at that moment. Whereas this, the girl is feeling confused and lost, therefore we're playing Marrakesh. How those things relate, yeah. I'm not entirely sure. But well, well, in, in High Score Girl, I feel like it's it's like these characters have long relationships with these with these games, and it at its best, it feels like when you were eight, like eight or nine years old, and you go over to your friend's house <laughs> who has a Super Nintendo, and he just like talks at you while playing Super Mario Brothers three, <laughs> and you just like get you like get 
into this game from someone who's obsessed with it mm. because every everyone's obsessed with every game in high school girls like yeah. the hyper reality of that while in while in uh, after school dice club like what's her face class rep i'm gonna learn their names someday <laughs> but not for the first episode yeah smoke smoking hot mega neko class rep uh is just like she like doesn't want to play the game and in fact the store owner who uh jeff you said is played by the voice actor who yeah he's Kiryu kazuma from the yakuza games like doing (laughs) almost the exact same affect and if you've played those games you know he has this like you know this like weird playful side that comes out in all the side stories that you could you could almost mistake this for you know a possible future for him if he hadn't been a yakuza heavy yeah, he's he's bald. And he's wearing like a wearing like a like one of those really tight short sleeve shirts that like guys who go to the gym a lot wear. And he's wearing like these glasses that are almost like coming to like with their like triangle mm-hmm. angularity. And he like scares all the girls. But then he's actually just kind of like a really like petty and childish. Like he's like I he's like I always play to win even against young women. Mm-hmm. And and they're like that's sad that you think that that's like makes you sound cool. And he's yeah. like shut up. And he's like oh you know. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me. Uh, you probably won't get a lot out of this, but he reminds me a lot of the main character from School Rumble, the, hmm. uh, the yeah. heavy guy, who, who I think <laughs> oh, also... Yeah. It's like he's grown up and... Yeah, and he's grown old. up and he's... Where, wow. he, where he also, like, comes off as a badass, but he's kind of just a little bit of, like, a like a, a petty, wimpy dude. Uh, what's his name? <sighs> Harima. Ken, Kenji Harima. Where, yeah, everyone thinks he's a delinquent, but he's actually a nice guy because... But he just like looks like a tough badass. So, and that reminds me of that. That's like one of Japan's like favorite like minor tropes or the the delinquent who's just actually perfectly normal. We have that in Toradora too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, every gag show with a big cast t- typically has the like the big scary one who is actually a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, one thing I did like about the show because uh, one thing you kind of skipped over in the synopsis that like the mm. the main character Miki is like you know borderline agoraphobic or like has you know maybe more than average you know social awkwardness you know unable to pick up on cues unable to just like sort of enjoy being around people and when she meets the the new girl in class um she you know she drags her out of the house and this is the same person who drags her out to stalk the the class rep and they just uh-huh. start going walking around in the hills and miki is freaking out because like they're gonna get lost she's gonna get in trouble and she doesn't really get the the mentality of just going out and getting lost for the for the fun of it and that and also and when they go and they play marrakesh like they they talk about the rules of the game but they also talk about the thought process of what you're doing while you're playing the game mm-hmm. which i thought sort of tied together the two the two portions of the of the show and um i i i appreciate that like i don't know how like you, you, I think if you wanted to, you know, based on a single episode of this, you know, very light show, you know, you could you could possibly read Miki as being like on the spectrum or. Yeah, I mean, I, I did immediately when she's wearing headphones in class and mm-hmm. the class rep comes over and pulls them off and she has a legitimate like episode of like, no, she like, grabs them back and it's like, no, I'm busy and puts them back on. And like and and like I, I there's nothing to indicate that this is being done on purpose uh i know from personal experience that games are an excellent uh are an excellent path to learn those kinds of skills and i wonder if the author isn't doing that on purpose or if this is if this character is just <laughs> based on somebody who he knew and had no concept of you know 
that they're having these kinds of issues because like like ASD is very very commonly undiagnosed in girls and especially so in societies where there's not a lot of proactive work being done to look for those for those symptoms and yeah. so it, it it makes me interested but also very nervous of where the show is going to go if it's just going to be like a weird oh yeah I hope, I hope she doesn't get cured of of being autistic by by playing board games with friends yeah and it's yeah or it, that is just like a weird character trait that just kind of goes away yeah it's you know I'm I'm putting myself in danger of investing too much in a show that has that, that has done nothing to make me you know, to, to to earn it. But I mean, you're you're, you're there <laughs> with me every time I watch a cocktail based show, and like I mean, like you, <laughs> something that's like vaguely your interest, and they have a character that and they're doing something weird with them, and you can't tell if it's bad characterization or or if yeah, or if it's something from the author's daily life. I would like to think because um, this character, what's her face? Um, the main character girl, she, she taught, like she has an opening monologue where she's like, I've never understood what, how, what people do is fun for them. And when people want to play, I've never had fun mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't really understand this fun thing. And it actually kind of annoys me when people try to make me have fun. And like, that's, that's really striking in a very, a very weird place to start out a show about board games, mm-hmm. which are, but like this idea that maybe someone who has difficulty relating to people and difficulty doing tasks that don't have a point where she's just got this kind of like laser focus executive function. The idea that like a game, which is just a very contained set of rules with a very object, very distinct objective. Mm-hmm. The best case scenario is that, yes, that will be a good way to tackle like how people on the spectrum might deal with the world. Yeah. Um, where it is, it is a way to take a walk without really going anywhere, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But but we'll see. I don't have a terrible amount of confidence in it. I am going to quietly look up the production staff while someone else talks. I mean, um, yeah, I, I think the thing is, even if it is presenting her as that, I don't get the feeling it's ever going to look at the ways that that sort of thing can cause people problems more any at any real depth like as you say there's this worry that it's going to be like presented as like a cure-all yeah now now she can relate to her friends now she has this way not what happens when she thinks the rules work one way and then they don't work that way and she's really upset by it to a level which everyone else can't understand and it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've def- they've definitely done nothing to suggest that they're going to have that level of depth or nuance. Uh, and the and the author is a guy, which is like it. So it doesn't seem like it's coming from somebody's like personal experience. Which so mm-hmm. well, I you never th- know if it's if it's just like his own experiences, but he made it girls because cute girls doing cute things is still a genre somehow yeah. in 2019. It, yeah, it, it, it definitely is. Like, I don't think this would get as many watches if it was a group of, of boys and a group of girls. That's just what the anime market is, for better or worse. And really quickly, the uh, the director, I personally most know him from Setokai no Ichizan, which is 
the slightly less funny uh, student council sex comedy, but still a very funny one, a much more like heavily referential one if you're the kind of person who likes that Family Guy style humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about you know Full Metal Alchemist a bunch, but so he at least knows how to do comedy um, and knows how to do really weird characters in a way that's not like mean. But I don't know much more than that. Do we have anything else we want to talk about, or do you want to move to our spotlight do you want topic to quickly cover the villain saga thing? Um, I mean, I I do think it's freaking hilarious that that like everyone has to look cool and like they have to make the Welsh look cool by giving them triremes and Roman <laughs> armor. But like, yeah, okay. I <laughs> that's my boys making an anime debut, kicking ass. <laughs> Uh, and I, I did like I did like the it's like each each kingdom is just like one tiny little valley. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like okay, we're going over this hill, we're going to a new kingdom, and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that's well, so very territorial about our valleys. I did a little bit of checking now, and I think I have an answer to the ships, and the answer is no. They should be coracles, but coracles are is... the the most deeply unsexy boat in the world. So, what if I told you in the reason I brought this up is because in the manga they they look like coracles, but with eyes painted on the front. <laughs> that sounds rad. I don't know. It, like I, because I I liked it in the manga because I thought, oh wow, they're they're trying to ape this 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 little bit of thing they remember about the original, and all they've got is the, these shitty little coracles to 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 ape it with, and and in this in the real in uh. The anime, all that we get is right from massive fucking triremes. Deal with it, bro. <laughs> These coracles are adorable. Well, they are. <laughs> adorable. Although, although maybe they, they do want to introduce coracles because then we'd get uh, people uh, claiming that someone went across the entire Atlantic in them. Poor, poor St. Brendan. <laughs> He's the one who's supposed to have done it, or one of his, one of his acolytes. Yeah. I, I still remember being I still remember being in a history class not history English class uh, when Glendower, who's the 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 one Welsh name that Shakespeare knows and reuses over and over in his in his plays, and discovering that like Glendower is like the semi legendary figure that can like cast black magic and has died and come back to life with the scars of where he was killed before, kind of in that sort of. Uh, Beric Dodarian Game of Thrones thing, um, and just like the just like the fact that even even in the like 16th century, the English are still kind of weirded out by the Welsh <laughs> and like what they're what they're doing in their like rocky, poor, cramped little little country. I wonder how much Vinland Saga is informed by like Jack White novels. Like it's it's you know uh, the first book is called The Skystone, and it like purports to use like a you know a historical basis to talk about like the Arthurian legend everyone it. does yeah it's <laughs> as like you know the leftovers of the empire who like you know stake a little claim in the in the middle of britain and then you know using roman tactics to hold off the barbarians and and like you know the the saxons start coming in and all that kind of stuff. I remember it being very yeah. compelling when I was in high school. I mean, that's what it, that's the target audience. What it looks like between that and Bernard Cornwall, they kind yeah. of have a. Oh man, I issued so many copies of Bernard Cornwall when I worked in the local library. It was like, yeah, it's like num- number one novel for like l- young boomers and Gen Xers interested in history. Yeah, 
Yeah, my my dad moved over to Bernard Cornwall when he ran out of Jack White books. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a certain type. It's a new generation of myth making for the British Isles because the British the British are obsessed with um, where they came from because they spent the Middle Ages being a mongrel people and then they came to rule the world. So we have to we have to. <laughs> mm. Well, isn't the the whole um, the, the the Green Knight stuff the whole that whole. St- set of poetry which was like the same same era as Chaucer but was written in sort of the, the borderlands between sort of Cheshire and North Wales like that's got an entirely sort of different sort of language and beat to it to, to all to like Chaucer I don't know how Chaucerian or is, is that how we, we describe Chaucerian would be uh, yeah Chaucerian is actually the right good good guess <laughs> well like that the whole sort of Chaucerian um, oeuvre of like stuff which comes after his works like how he he sort of dominated English culture and the way they sort of write and, and talk for a long time and has so much influence on Shakespeare and people who come after him and like there's this entire alternate it thing running in the borderlands which where you have these these much darker tales which are less concerned with like uh the 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 the, the church and and such and mm. more concerned with like death, rebirth, and... Well, I suppose Church is concerned with that a lot. <laughs> I mean, in, in, in general, the Arthurian legends are interesting because they they sprang, spring up on their oral history, English and Welsh and Cornish oral history, um, but they're not written... They're only written down by people on the fringes. Yeah. Um, the Gawain poet, or the Pearl poet, who wrote the, the uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is thought to be from the West Midlands or Chester. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, and then like uh, Marie La France is, is is probably the author who puts down most of the canonical Arthurian tales, and she's writing at Troyes um, <laughs> in central France, and all these people who talk with English men who never think about <laughs> they're just like oh yeah it's one of those tales people tell them you can probably get a get a, a minstrel to, to sit down and tell you them it's like well why don't you write them down they're like uh-huh. so <laughs> so yeah it is interesting about. About that, and I do wonder how, because clearly with Vinland Saga, at least he's read the Eddas, but I'm not convinced how much other stuff he's read. Yeah. And whenever we see someone who's not discussed in the Eddas, we get the like weird, like hamburger-faced Frenchman, or the or the like <laughs> the bizarre tall Roman uh, Welsh, and yeah. like. I mean, I'm happy that someone else gets to look at like a badass besides besides the the Norse. Like, <laughs> I'm happy to have these tall, austere, kind of like confusingly moody Welshmen <laughs> talking to them. But it's uh, still, they, they are extremely stoic. And uh... and imagine if they were rowing up in their coracles. Those come out of the mist. That would, that would have been a different mood. Let's face it. <laughs> yeah. But... What's what's his face? Thorfinn would be like would be like, what the fuck? It's like no. <laughs> Ashkel's like no. Trust me. These these weird little bathtubs that you float in the ocean with are, are really great. Yeah, I think like there's this strange British attitude to the um, the countries which um, we owe a lot of our sort of because we, we we like the the whole modern British myth which 
certain people are exploiting for uh, political <laughs> gain at the moment. Sorry, I didn't realize is, this, is a, this is a sore spot for you, probably. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> Like oh, we're the never conquered uh, place. And yet for hundreds Which of years, so we were conquered a lot. We were people invaded a lot, and then they wiped out the the previous lot, and another lot came in and wiped them out. And then, it's like no, dude. Like we we got lucky for a couple hundred years once naval power became a legit thing. But pre pre, pre to that, yeah, people were rolling in all the time. <laughs> perish the thought like uh, most of our uh our sort of what conception of what is english nowadays comes from frenchmen who <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean mm-hmm. yeah like the, the fact is even when when england wasn't invaded they were ruled by french kings dutch kings and then german kings like the hanovers and the house of orange like these are these are foreign kings and they and sure like the english people made them our king um but yeah, national myth making is it's so weird and like we can see it eating away at, at the the political and social cultures of of America and of England and even like probably Canada's feeling some weird stuff. So yeah, like the way that we re- we remember our like that's but speaking as a professional story and briefly because otherwise I'm completely off the books, but the idea of memory is a very hot thing in history right now, how we remember our past, not just what happened, but how later people choose to memorialize those events or forget them. And it's very interesting to watch Vinland Saga and to see the memory of Vikings and the memory mm-hmm. of England's coalescence into the uh, into the eventual world power that it would become filtered through a Japanese person's perspective who is clearly well-read. Like I've said, he, he obviously has at least read all most of the poetic Eddas or the prose Eddas, um, and he's read so, no small amount of history. But at the same time, he's definitely buying a lot of what's being sold by the people who have previously wrote about and talked about mm. those works. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see what he accepts uncritically, uh, History Channel the Vikings show style versus what he decides to problematize and what he decides to. And like the, the most interesting part for me is of course the character of Ashkelad and the character of Thor's who both are much more authentic to what I've read of the, the prose and poetic Eddas than, than just, you know, fucking Thorkel walking around. <laughs> like I said before, as a Jojo villain and the last couple episodes, he's the same way. He just like loves to fight. And like, if someone's going to kill him, he's like, sweet. I'm excited. Death's, death's the new adventure. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's like a Baki villain who wants to taste defeat. <laughs> you got Baki on the brain, boy. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but And also, as we've covered several times on the show, like the the disease of like ultranationalism and history revisionism is not, you know, a strictly Western malady. And I think, you know, that also I think will play into our next section as well. Uh yeah, how you know how pre- previously conquered peoples are are depicted, and how they, you know, and how the, we also integrate them into our own into our own histories. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's take, go yeah. ahead and take a break then, and we'll come back and talk about depictions of China in anime.
And we're back. We are here to talk about our topic, which is was originally anime Chinese girl, but we're kind of taking a, a broader reach with this. And this goes from characters as stereotyped as Tin Tin from Naruto with her Odango and her traditional Chinese dress to Melissa Mao in Full Metal Panic, who they just say she's Chinese once and it never really comes up again. Uh, but I think we're going to start, speaking of action-oriented anime, <laughs> uh, we are going to talk about the character of Shenhua from Black Lagoon. I know that I forced you to watch a few episodes of Black Lagoon, Duncan, for this I, segment, and I'm sorry. I know that Black, you don't hate it as much as I do. No, but Black, Black Lagoon's just a guilty pleasure to me. I, 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 I always, Emphasis on guilty. I always enjoy the episodes I watch of it, and uh, afterwards I, I think about what it contains. I go, oh, I feel a bit greasy, but it's it's... <laughs> It's a, an enjoyable lunch while I consume it anyway. And so this is yeah. a, this is a action anime about a, a crew of kind of modern day pirates operating out of a freeport city named Ronapur, and their encounters with various other lawless elements in the South China Seas. I mean, it's basically a Tarantino esque mashup of um, action movie. Tropes, and and it's almost like the, like like the warriors in the way it depicts like the different gangs at sea, where they all have like a very <laughs> strong central theme to all yeah. of them. There's the there's the ex KGB Russian gang. There's the super typical Chinese triad gang. Um, there's is, the there's the nuns, the gun dealing nuns, because this is anime, <laughs> uh, and occasionally like South American cartels try to intervene in, and then there is. The, the the Lagoon Company, which is Dutch, one of the probably one of the best figured black men in anime, unfortunately, and Benny, one of the best figured Jewish men in anime. I mean, they're just good characters. Is I don't think we we just ha- we have to put um, sort it's, of it's in, worth in it. It's worth it to bring up that anime does not handle people yeah. of color very well, and Dutch is just a dude. Yeah, extremely normal dude. Uh, who likes scotch and jazz That's music? Great. And yeah, and Benny's just a hacker nerd. But he also like cel- I think he celebrates like Passover in one episode or something. Mm. Like, but but since Japan has always been kind of tainted with uh, a lot of like Rothschild uh, z- like protocols of the elders of Zion stuff, it's good that like he's just a normal dude too. And then we have Revy who sucks shit and is a terrible person. Uh, <laughs> the half Chinese half-American gun for hire, and then Rock, the burnt-out Japanese salaryman who got kind of kidnapped slash conscripted into the gang. Because he's the perspective character, right? Yeah. I mean, he's there for a lot of the episodes. He's not there for all of them. The the show really doesn't have much of a sense of of narrative framing. It's just kind of, if there's something cool happening, the camera will be there to see it. <laughs> I, I do think we're supposed to see it from his point point of view. Like, though it is very, he definitely like the first, when it first comes in, it, it we're meant to see it, see it as ridiculous as he does. And, and then as it goes on, it's so, as he becomes sort of more inured to it, like the, the plot lines get in turn less wacky and more serious. And I, Thing, generally the worse for it the, the wackier they are the, the more yeah. I tend to enjoy them the, the, the um, attempt to p- provide like a realistic depiction of like a lawless gangland dominated city 
really goes off the rails. And especially because, like, the latter season is also when, they, when, like, the KKK show up in motorboats. And to have that juxtaposed next to, like, oh, serious stuff about... Uh, a rogue Bulgarian intelligence officer defecting to the remnants of the like ultra leftist student movement in Japan, and they're going to do a, an attack on the U.S. embassies to force them to close the embassies and damage the president's credibility going into an election. And then, meanwhile, you've got guys in, in like white cloaks and pointed hats, like riding around in motorboats with machine guns. Uh, yeah, it's the tone. Black Lagoon has tone problems, and it's also <laughs> yeah. very it's also very mean spirited in a way that I just don't have patience for anymore. If I'd watched this when I was in high school or early college, I would have enjoyed it. But now, even all the gun the gun porn doesn't really do much for me. I just think that they're all assholes, and I wish I didn't have to hang out with it, them. It does have <laughs> the best audio gun porn. Like mm-hmm. it's like Re- Revy's uh, uh, the recoil of Revy's guns. There's this sort of like ding ding. It's just like I, weirdly iconic to me. Like I remember that of from the, this series more than I do many other little details. No credit where credits do. Like similar pistols make different like noises based on their caliber. Like they actually did their research, which of course I mean like people who watch this are going to care about the guns so it's worth their time but still nice that they did it mm-hmm. but one character who doesn't use guns duncan mm-hmm. <laughs> is uh is the character of shenhua she is a taiwanese assassin in the employment of mr chang who i'm not going to say in the really awkward stilted way that the anime says it yeah um, because the anime is very enamored with everyone's actually speaking english so occasionally we get those weird things but uh, she is a knife and dart obsessed assassin who speaks in this ridiculous broken English and actually has a lot of bad blood with Revy because they both see themselves as like embarrassments for Chinese dumb or whatever. It's it's like I think this is a common like this is something I think we'll come back to in other bits as well is that the way the Japanese like to frame Chinese culture is quite often as sort of quite traditional and maybe even backwards. Like, a lot of anime doesn't address China as it is now, this huge modern superpower. It's, as you say, it's this it's, it's this knife-wielding, um, traditionally-dressed um, uh, assassin who doesn't speak... Um, proper English as opposed to uh, just a, another country where people are uh, metropolitan speak, mm-hmm. speak English yeah. and, uh, especially where it's she... since she's from Taiwan and not from like mainland China or something like that yeah yeah I don't I wish I knew more about how Japan politically and culturally feels about the the one China issue but mm-hmm. like but this but 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 Xinhua is literally is literally using kukuris and like those kind of I don't want to call them Naruto darts, but fine. I just did. Um, but I she's mean, like she's like literally wearing a, a, a chung sound sound like the the traditional like high necked uh, slit on the side Chinese dress that we think of as like the traditional Chinese female yeah, guard. Like, the sort like, of Chun Li look. Yes. Yeah, Chun Li from Street Fighter. Although she's got like wicked like bangs swooped over one eye instead of the typical Odango uh, buns that usually happen, mm-hmm. but. I mean, I like her. I think she's a funny character, and I think the fact that, like, that she doesn't speak good English, but, like, the show repeatedly... their fav- One of their favorite jokes is people think she's dumb because she can't speak English properly, and she ends up being, like, a lot quicker thinker and, like, more 
like yeah she like when people are like when when uh, Revy calls her she calls her like Chinglish or she calls her uh, yes it is because she always says like uh, des, des, um, destane or whatever that was like yes it is in Japanese mm. uh, but even though she gets mocked like she definitely doesn't take shit from anybody but at the same time she is a deeply racist caricature of mm. of China from Japan who granted doesn't have the best history with China mm-hmm I was just going to say, like, like every other example that I was looking at, uh, looking at this topic, there's, there seems to be a very, like, common, like, the, like the common threads are traditional Chinese dress, to, regardless of where they're from, um, a very, like, 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 broken Japanese being, like, you know, everybody speaks very, very formally, but usually using, you know, slightly wrong particles or slightly wrong conjugations. Or just uh, having, using weird emphasis, which is a lot, which is frequently a way that... Japan is Japanese is depicted as being spoken mm-hmm. wrong, but also emphasizing it, syllables that don't make sense. Yeah, but also being very strong and dangerous, mm-hmm. and like like the weird combination of like too weak but too powerful that a lot of you know people with problematic relationships with other people tend to fixate on and fetishize. Like shampoo from Ranma is like a, like a prime <laughs> example of this. Like ev- like basically, if you if you read out the the TV tropes of for this, it's basically just describing shampoo from Ranma, who yeah. is you know depicted as you know a Chinese Amazon, which is like the, typically the way it is uh, translated, who you know can barely speak the language and but also is just like smashing through walls and talking like a weird child all the time and. Yeah, that's one trait. I also noticed, especially with Shenhua and the other character, Karna from Nia Under Seven that I was going to talk about, that also like money or status obsessed is a very is a very frequent trope here, which is hmm. funny because Japan also does it itself with uh, the Osaka or uh, sort of stereotype is they're also very like kind of crass and money obsessed and tradition focused. And so it almost feels like the the trope of the Osakan writ large i mean we remember like in in uh in kill a kill when they go to osaka and it's just <laughs> everyone's got like gold-plated teeth and is wearing like cheap furs yeah. and is talking about money and like we see that with like um karna is obsessed with like being accepted as like an important member of society and shenhua repeatedly was like i don't fight unless you pay me if you pay me i will do exactly what you pay me for but i won't do anything else it's kind of sort of mm-hmm. laziness but also greediness I wonder if it's kind of like a similar mentality how, you know, any historical villain is depicted as being British regardless of what <laughs> nationality they're supposed to be. Yeah. It's just, no, it's, it's just like a cultural shorthand. Yeah. It's old, old it's a slang for like these old cultures, quote unquote old cultures. Like they have a better sense of tradition, but they're also like very materialistic and lazy and decadent. And I think that we get that a lot from Chinese characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the film I sort of watched this, Sword of the Stranger, definitely has some of that in its uh, depiction of of its its characters are explicitly Chinese. They're not; they are people from China who have come over to hunt down a, a young mixed Japanese Chinese kid and sacrifice him to make a. Okay, immortality, immortality potion. potion yeah for the for the emperor and mm-hmm. like it's got this and they are depicted as both weirdly ignorant and backwards in their uh in their 
practices and yet also overwhelmingly strong compared to the, mm-hmm. the yeah, supernaturally strong and yeah and almost deviantly strong because one of the things it, it seeds is that they use um a drug to make them immune to pain yeah and like there's this co- combination of like that of all those things which make them very very much like this old power which sort of just just come in and you don't want to antagonize them because they're very powerful and and you just like keep your head down just just nod and hope they go away without causing too much trouble and i think it's it's really interesting because the sort of stranger is a show where which also introduces two characters um uh raul who is a blonde-haired blue-eyed uh swordsman working for the chinese and uh nanashi a uh, uh bl- a red-haired uh, brown-eyed uh swordsman who is uh the the who is yeah, yeah he's depicted as being like yeah, and he's like he's depicted as being a foreigner, you know, probably from a western province of China. Um, but yeah, like they're they're it, it, it's it's interesting because in both cases those characters are, you know, they're coded to be or also, you know, just revealed to be foreigners, but that sort of like lends to them being supernaturally strong in a way that like the native-born Japanese are not. Mm. And like the sort of the stranger that seems less interested in depictions of nationality being strength and more into like the idea of like filial piety and loyalty to a Lord being or, or, or to a higher cause being yeah. the source of power and strength. Yeah. Cause um, like originally like the, the obvious take on its title sort of the stranger is like, okay, that you're talking about a Ronin. It's like this roaming, this, archetype roaming samurai who goes like from place to place not affiliated with anyone but then when when you think about it a little bit more like its central theme is how people if as the very moment that you let someone else tell you what you're fighting for and who you should kill you are immediately your sword is not your own it's it's essentially you're your it your sword becomes the sword of a stranger, and their desires, their wants, and their morals uh, overwrite your own. And you have these two um, people who, in Nanshi's case, gives up fighting because he was ordered to kill uh, a, a mother and child, and that br- broke his otherwise. Um, his commitment to his feudal mm. lord and it was just like after that he starts he stops fighting and has, has sort of entered like this period where he just has like no no direction until he uh, in, is introduced to the uh the the child who the uh, Chinese are looking for, which is, oh God, I oh, can't yeah, remember his uh, name. Kotaro. Yeah, and it, and 
he act- and uh, interestingly the same way we sort of talk about uh, boy and the beast like here you have this very uh, this this person learning from the, this child in as much as this, the child is learning from him and the the opposite of that is if you've got Raoul who is this um as we say bl- blonde haired blue eyed man amidst this chinese uh uh, invasion force and what sets him apart is he has this unsentimentality about um, what he's doing whereas they all depicted as fanatically devoted to their emperor mm-hmm. he is just there because as uh, to return to the Thorkel backy trope he just wants to fight someone tough yeah, yeah he has a purity of purpose uh-huh. yeah and, and and one thing I noticed throughout the movie is that it is anytime one of the, like the super Chinese warriors is killed, it's almost always because the one who's doing the business is doing it for a higher purpose, or if it's by like a crowd of people unified in a in a common purpose. Like mm-hmm. anytime a character is seemed to be like straying from from their own loyalties or from their own higher purposes towards a more like venal end. That's when that's their undoing. And you can, it also depicts like the Chinese uh, warriors. Like their, their leader is this, uh, this old man who is, you know, he's uh, master uh, Bai Luan, who is, you know, the most loyal of all of the warriors wanting to do this elaborate ceremony to like draw the blood of this child to make an immortality potion for the, uh, for the emperor, but you know, because of his own old age, he is like terrified of death and starts talking about wanting to to steal it for himself. And you get the sense that a lot of his urgency is because he's af- he's afraid of his own death, and that mm. is that is what spells his undoing. And the like the the purity of purpose for the uh, like the the random European guy of just, I just want to fight people. I don't care about anything else. Like that is sort of depicted as being his strength. Mm. And, you know, the only reason Nanashi, the the main character overcomes him is because he's doing it in, in the service of the child. And, you know, if you get the sense that if he hadn't, if he didn't have like Toby Maru to, to, or uh, Kotaro and his dog, <laughs> oh. Toby Maru to, to, to protect, he would not have overcome him. Toby, Toby Maru is a, a good dog. Yeah, top, yeah, yeah. Tony is is you know the best dog, and also you know plays into that same theme because it's his loyalty to his master that makes him powerful. Yeah, and like the sort of stranger is rightly thought of as one of the best examples of uh, action choreography within anime. In oh, yeah. particular, in particular, the final fight between uh, Nanashi and Raoul is just a breathtaking even now it's it's like yeah, yeah it's uh, a studio it, bones joint so like the 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 production values are unbelievable and the animation is excellent and yeah it's it, it it's mostly just like a an action movie and you, if you just wanted to come into it for good sword fights you will be well served by this and sorry yeah. i just stomped all over your point no no it's, it's i think that's that's hundred percent and thing is like you can read it on t- on either level like you can all, I think all the deaths do happen for reasons, like as you say, like it is, they aren't just oh this is random, ra- this is a random fight for no reason. He's just killed because okay, plot contrivances. It's because 
of their own each character's motivation and their own greed or um uh, arrogance or yeah so like the, the that the, that final sequence is started off when um, Nanashi's running up to this giant platform they've built to sacrifice the, the kid on, and like one of the other Chinese people who's previously um, claimed to have killed Nanashi, he, he sort of runs out to fight him and is, is like arrogantly laughing and like, haha, I'm gonna kill, kill you again, and he just gets one shotted basically, and Nanashi just straight past him yeah. the moment he moments that uh, I mean one of the big things about Nanashi throughout this um, show is although he's not is he's, he's an interesting not quite Kenshin uh, he's, he's not quite a full pacifist because he does not draw his sword throughout the film however the first fight we see him in, he crushes a man's wind, windpipe with that undrawn sword. And yeah, so this, this yeah, he's really a merkin weird... guy, so yeah, he's yeah. like I've I've chosen to only kill people in inconvenient ways. Like he refuses to draw his blade until the very end. Yeah, because like that's a really strange thing. Like he's I don't I don't want to kill again. I will not draw my my sword, but I'm gonna hammer this guy's windpipe in apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and like. That final fight is is between Raoul and Nanashi. It's like ends in them both charging towards each other with each other's broken sword and uh, a sort of a stranger, if you will. Yeah, (laughs) once again, (laughs) doubling down there. Um, And you know, like there's that 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 classic two samurai shot where two people run at each other and slash. And mm-hmm. then then we, we pause and who's cut who? And like the, the reveal is uh, uh, Raru's blades blocked by the p- big piece of jade that um, Nanshi was given by uh, Kotaru as his, his payment uh, for being his bodyguard. And so that's what saves him, mm-hmm. um, which, which incidentally has previously been uh, revealed to be worth one tenth of what he was told it was. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, it's just like a... a, a a dumb trinket and it's not actually mm-hmm. worth that much and so it's 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 just this symbol of his um of his loyalty his, yeah as you say of his service and yeah it's the the, inter- the other interesting thing is the role of the um the feudal lords and and his uh, underlings in this in that uh they are shown as completely and utterly um immoral as you say like they, they yeah. each like the the lord himself is just is going to double tr- cross the chinese who he's he's mm-hmm. invited into his domain the moment he, he sees it's it to his advantage and his lieutenant's gonna um have him killed the moment it's he's got an opportunity to do it and take control of the armed forces and mm-hmm. his lieutenant is just in it because he wants to marry the princess yeah and yeah they're like, depicted more like gangsters than like noble lords yeah, it's like the, um, the the Chinese have like this this line about them being uh, just like to them uh, a, a lord is just a bloodline. It's it's not like the emperor who's like a, a divine being to them, and it's like it's just another person who can just be disposed of and replaced by the next in line. And I do wonder if there's part of the the Japanese attitudes to the the chinese comes from the fact like a lot uh, this is this is what we previously talked about how the um when talking about vinland saga how its author 
reads reads a lot of things second hand and and I, I'm wondering if some of my readings of um uh of sort of stranger uh are colored by the same thing because I can't help but see um the the Japanese emperor in the way they talk about the Chinese devotion to their own emperor like mm-hmm. this uh, that that's that they're all prepared to die for him they're all very fanatically devoted and like this whole image of japanese um world war Two stuff which has been fed to me by just years and years of um western depictions of world war Two of like um these warriors from these two are just prepared to do whatever the emperor says yeah, and yeah like, the bushido the bushido myth yeah and also just like my very light historical understanding of just how um how much the chinese language and the chinese um philosophy influenced the the sort of structure of early japan and like mm-hmm. wondering how much i understand and how much i don't and yeah yeah, yeah i was i was going to bring up briefly cuz like this idea of the chinese as these like huge powerful people i wonder when I was reading about Chinese history a few a few weeks ago, the idea of graphical pejoratives got introduced to me, which is this idea that the Chinese, in the specific way they construct their the logographic characters they use to refer to different people, they will often substitute the human radical, which would be normal with the dog radical or the demon radical. Hmm. So that's how we literally, like originally, um, the written name of Japan was Wa, uh, which uh, used the human radical plus a certain character to mean like to mean like dwarf people or dwarf barbarians. <laughs> um, and part of the, the big uh, diplomatic effort in the 18th century, when Japan was trying to uh, Japan's stable empire was trying to establish relationships with the Tang dynasty was insisting that they, they choose a different character so that it means, you know, harmony or peace uh, and eventually it became Nihon, which is, you know, root of the sun. But China has this history of people who aren't Chinese um, don't get to have the human uh, radical in their in their exonym. Mm-hmm. It's very common to call, you know, to call people like dog people or snake people. Yeah, white um, devils. Or, yeah, literally white devils is, is because they use the uh, the human radical with a gui devil or ghost. So it's like literally devil men. Yeah. Um, or like the Tuoba people are called like Lu, so they're called like the coward people, um, and yeah, like wolf or or sheep people was one of the was one of the terms. So yeah, you have like these, and there's actually was an argument uh, that linguists Chinese linguists made that like something's not insulting unless it's written with the, with these like dehumanizing radicals. So there is this idea of just like built into the language of of China foreign people are lesser and Japan was possibly one of the earliest recipients of of this treatment so this idea that that you know if you're not chinese you're simply yeah, yeah like dwarf people literally mm-hmm. how much of the uh, japanese alphabet is shared with the chinese alphabet uh, kanji uh, kanji is entirely chinese yeah. um katakana and hiragana are based on courtly cursive hands um, that got standardized. China did this too, but its cursive is only ever has only ever been sort of like a shorthand way of writing. While in Japan, it got codified into a syllabary. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, 
Yeah. It also, you know, sort of, you know, parallels with uh, the British idea of self-identity when half the language is, you know, leftovers from being conquered by foreign peoples, like how all the, all the words for, you know, processed, you know, you have beef being, uh, you know, the, the word for the, you know, for processed cow, which is based on, you know, the French word for boof, <laughs> because the, the nobles dealt with the processed results. They didn't deal with the, the animals. Yeah, every every farm animal, every meat animal has two different words for the animal itself and what it is when meat, which is how we have poultry and chicken mm-hmm. or veal and I never veals veals calf, right? I never yeah. know that. Pork and pig, yeah. You're right. <laughs> and yeah, beef and cows. Yeah, it's I think it's very difficult to get a full read on the way Japan treats China. That there's some of what we just consider typical stereotypes in it stuff, but obviously it has a a darker modern history with it as well. Yeah, which is... yeah, there's like it's 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 a weird kind of Japanese Orientalism almost. Well, because a lot of a lot of Japan learned its modern forms of racism from trying to imitate the Western powers in the 19th yeah. century when it was trying to get recognized as a world power like Britain or America or Russia. Yeah. So they, they learned if, they learned by watching us. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if partly that's not just because of the size of China, but because of that uh, idea of like we're trying to modernize and become more or quote unquote like. Uh, a western power and china has not yet done that and like if that's when because of world war ii has such a huge impact on the 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 japanese society and it still reverberates in it in so many ways like that's the way that the stereotype has just got stuck in history like this um this slightly um backwards people yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Collective, collectivist to a fault, like tradition bound to a point where they can't really function. And yeah, there, there's plenty of stuff. And in um, Karna in Neander Seven is an alien who's decided to take on um, Chinese, like Chinese culture, partially because she's got this super powerful antenna. With antennas being the the power of the antenna being the rating of someone in in uh, alien society, and she gets all these transmissions from china which is why she's decided that china is the best culture and of course she is greedy and grasping and combative and supercilious and entirely obsessed with with getting recognized on on a as high level as possible as this like powerful empowered person so basically she is just an allegory for how japan feels about china in the late 90s and early 2000s and ultimately she does like when nia disappears later on in the series she does come out and help despite hating Nia as everything that's wrong or embarrassing with alien society. But it is very weird to have this character who's dressed in a Chongsam and uh, is just this this money-grubbing, status-obsessed, like, nudnik, and to have her... Yeah, to have that, like, okay, this is what they think of China. They also have, like, an, a South Asian character who also is extremely conformist and runs a convenience store and a bunch of other racial stereotypes too. So 
Do we have any good examples of shows which attempt to tackle its its relationship in a more positive way? Like, I mean, the, sadly, the closest that I can get is in Girly Air Force, Song Minhua, the uh, the main character's like childhood friend who is a Chinese native who came over to to be with him in Japan when he had to when they had to flee as refugees, and she is just just like I talked about Dutch and Benny she's just a normal person except she's Chinese and like it's weirdly refreshing that the only time we really have her Chineseness brought up is when he's like spending all this time away cuz he's got a, an airplane girlfriend um but and she's like she's like you're never here and I don't know anybody and I don't really speak the language that well I I wish you would come home more and be my friend because it's hard to be to be in a foreign land and it feels really sympathetic that like yeah japan is probably kind of weird and scary to to chinese nationals um it doesn't seem at least from what i've seen in anime and the news it doesn't seem like a very welcoming place for because of the, yeah. the massive national scale inferiority complex that japan has about china and plus all like the genocide shit so yeah and i can't 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 think of any examples of a protagonist's I mean, if if John was here, he would say uh, Dragon Ball. But yeah, I was gonna mm. say apart from that, which is like a mythic, the entire cast is essentially. And oh god, let's just not get into Dragon Ball and racial stereotypes because yeah. yeah. that's yeah. a, yeah. a well we don't want to go <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah. Um, that that vintage of comic creators still still deep in mid century weirdness. I feel like. Yeah. But like, like I mentioned Melissa Mao at the beginning in Full Metal Panic, and she also is the same mold. And in fact, has the same purple hair and amber eyes that Song ming does. I guess that might be some weird racial coding. Yeah. But Also she's, shampoo, same thing. Yeah, weird. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's just like a normal person who happens to be Chinese. And that's, I think, the best we get a lot in anime is like the the most complimentary thing we can hear about about like the continental Chinese is like, oh, they're just like us. They just speak a different language versus their weird, monstrously strong, collective obs- collectivist obsessed, like... The only two examples I can think of which are close are both examples where it's a China-like society. It's it's mm. not explicitly China, but if you read between the lines, it is. And um, that is one which you mentioned uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Ben, uh, Twelve Kingdoms, and yes, you're yeah. right. That's a great example. And like, I, if you want to talk about that for a moment, while well, I remember the I second one, I watched it ten years ago, and I'll mostly I just know like there is this weird acknowledgement in Japanese society that they have a lot of the same mythology as China, and so I do think that if you go to historical or historical fantasy works like um, even Thunderbolt Fantasy, you get this much less virulent anti-Chinese-ness because they... There's a weird thing where they see themselves as ultimately the same people culturally, even though obviously they've gone their separate ways. And in fact, I see Japan and China more in antagonism than in alliance lately, thanks to the Cold War and the Trans-Pacific, Par- Trans-Pacific Partnership and all that stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, the, the other one which I was thinking of is um, uh, Mori... Mori... Oh, I can't pronounce... Moribito. Yeah, Guardian of the Spirit, which is once again has a, a, a very 
uh, Chinese coded uh, uh, lead uh, female. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good old good old Balsa. Yeah, Balsa <laughs> Balsa is actually once again when we refreshingly good just because she's just a normal person. <laughs> yeah, it's like wow, she's just a person with normal concerns and and stuff, and not particularly sexualized and not particularly racially stereotyped. Even though that, as we say, she is depicted as living what is a seemingly a very uh, mythologized version of China. Yeah, it's very, it's very like early Qin Han era China of this sort of. But I think that's similar. I think that Japan often locates a lot of its of its homegrown fantasy in sort of a fantasy China, a lot like how uh, Americans with our with our many many fantasy novels tend to have some sort of bizarrely whitewashed Europe as as our fantasy location. We have this we have this idea of where the mainstream of our culture actually comes from. Um, and yet people can basically set a fantasy novel in France while still, when talking about the French themselves, call them cheese-eating surrender monkeys or whatever. <laughs> and it's this weird sort of love-hate relationship that we have that, that I think, quote-unquote, newer civilizations have with their, quote-unquote, like older civilization precedents is that um, like America's love-hate relationship with Britain is bizarre and, you know deeply wants to have Regency era dramas, but also thinks that you're a bunch of backward people with bad teeth and an obsession with unedible food. So it's, I can see there's not the same racialization because there is literally just like the, the genetic stock of the Chinese is seen as like different and inferior from the Japanese who see themselves as pure because they haven't interbred with the barbarians or whatever that bullshit racial science is. Yeah. So there is that, like that grossness there. And like, Japan has its own issues with the Ainu people, which we've seen in, in uh, mm-hmm. Golden Kamui and elsewhere. But there is like, there's a bit more of a racial tension there. But overall, it's definitely a sort of situation where, where yeah, it's just Japan's inferiority, com- or inferiority complex. Like America's inferiority complex. Yeah. <laughs> like to some I extent, think... Britain's inferiority, inferiority yeah. complex. <laughs> I think we've, we've hit the point where we've gone as deep uh, as, as we can on this. So, yeah, um, what we're saying is just smash the nation state, reject nationalism. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's really weird that you can have these, these really interesting fictional grounds and still hate the people who, or like mistrust or disdain the people who sowed those grounds. And it's, it's bizarre that like, I mean, it's, it's completely explicable because China and Japan have like in the framework of World Wars one and two is the second 30 years war. Japan and China fought like a 30 year war over Japan trying to conquer a nation that was way too big for itself mm-hmm. and also committing egregious war crimes for which it's never really been called to account for. Yeah. Thanks, um, MacArthur. Yeah. So just. Having the having those at work means that the relationship's fraught, and I'm I was surprised when we prepared for this topic at how pejorative the depiction of the Chinese is in Japanese media. Chinese people are in Japanese media. It, I didn't expect it to be as overwhelmingly negative. I remembered Karner from Nia Under Seven as being funny, but not a parody of the like the petty, stupid, status obsessed, nouveau riche Chinese person. And it was very weird to have that pushed forward in a show that I think is generally compassionate about its characters, even characters that are coded as mentally ill or even schizophrenic. 
So, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a bummer, but it was, I mean, got you, you guys to watch Sword of the Stranger again. I wish I could have joined in. I didn't have the time. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Yep. Okay, well, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Remember, rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Keyframes Pod. Search for Facebook on Keyframes Podcast. Email us questions at keyframespodcast at gmail.com. And of course, tell a friend, tell a Chinese friend. Or a Japanese friend. Yeah, maybe not about this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we do that joke every time, Jeff. <laughs> but maybe specifically not this episode. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm curious. Like, I, I want, like, if, if anything, if this, my best case scenario would be that this would get someone who is of Chinese ancestry or background to write in about the experience about watching anime as a Chinese person. Because, like... I didn't remember, even remember this, but remember how Agu is a Chinese production that just happened to have a Japanese studio behind it? Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it also has a lot of weirdness, but it doesn't seem to hate its non-Japanese characters like sometimes we get there. So, yeah, write in if you have any, any feelings about this, and we'll, we'll put you front and center in the next episode. But in the meantime, say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. So I was really into the terror, which is about the lost, uh, the lost expedition in 1845 to find the Northwest Passage with some, with some uh, supernatural elements. And so I ended up remembering that the reason I'm interested in, in that period is because there was a, a Nova documentary uh, about it, and the music for that that is Stan Rogers' "The Northwest Passage," which when I looked that up is like a beloved song apparently in Canada and several politicians have used it. And it's about, it's, it's a song about manifest destiny and pushing the red man out of, uh, out of, out of the country so that, so that it can, it can uh, enjoy the fruits of, of Anglo-Saxon civilization. And like to have that, like ironically, like it was someone's like, like election song or something, a Canadian politicians. Yeah. Something. Yeah, so like, like, we have we have a bad tendency of saying the la- the the quiet part quietly, and like the, <laughs> we like we like to pretend that we are a much more enlightened country, but we're still you know a colonial country created by the British, and you know just because there are some First Nations people left after we we're finished, we think we like to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, at least we weren't as bad as the, the Americans. Yeah, here we are in the Wikipedia page. Um, it ranked fourth among the most important songs in Canadian history behind Neil Young's Heart of Gold, Bare Naked Ladies, If I Had a Million Dollars, <laughs> and Ian and Sylvia's Four Strong Winds. That's not even that's not even the best bare naked ladies song. <laughs> What's wrong with Canada? Okay, I will say that uh, if I had a million dollars is a very important song and how dare you. <laughs> <laughs> is it something about about being Canadian that I don't get being from the southern southern United States or is it just we think the idea of Dijon ketchup and macaroni <laughs> and like craft dinner is very funny and very relatable. Thank no, you very I, much. That's those are my favorite parts. <laughs> but we would eat craft dinners, we just have more of them. Yeah. But not a real green dress, that's cruel. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, the Wikipedia article on if I had a billion dollars is fucking long and has a list of all the things that he would buy if he had a billion dollars. <laughs> the first concert I ever went to uh, was a uh, was a bare naked lady show when I was like twelve or thirteen. Wow. And that was uh, 
that was like, you know, the big hit. And when he said, you know, and they started talking about uh, macaroni or uh, craft dinner. They like a bunch of people in the audience like threw craft dinner up on stage. <laughs> oh, weird! So I just want to check. I understand what a craft dinner is. Is this like just a? a... It's just like instant macaroni and cheese. Yeah. Okay. So craft being as in the, the, the that's the, the brand. Yeah. Yes. Okay. No, not craft like craft cocktails. Craft like craft with a K. <laughs> yeah, the old KD, if you will. So they buy a house, they buy furniture for that house, such as a Chesterfield or an Ottoman. Mm-hmm. They buy a K-car, a Plymouth Reliant, a tree <laughs> fort, a little tiny fridge to contain pre-wrapped sausages, <laughs> a fake fur coat, an exotic pet like a llama or an emu, the remains of John Merrick, a limo to drive to the store, craft dinners and expensive ketchups, ketchups to John ketchups, a green dress but not a real one, some art like a Picasso or a Garfunkel, and a monkey. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love. Be rich. 